and welcome to Speak a Dogcast. My name is David Farb, Animal Behavior Specialist, and I am broadcasting from WOUF Wolf Studios in beautiful Palm City, Florida. Thank you so much for joining me again today. If you haven't clicked that subscribe or the follow button, go ahead and do so right now. New episodes come out every Wednesday morning. You're going to want to check them out. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Speak a Dogcast. And hey, guys, if you love what you're hearing, click that five-star rating. Yes, go ahead, give it a click if you love it. Let me know what you're thinking. I want to hear it. Now, today on the podcast, we have Walks and Sniffs. Should we allow our dogs to smell, to sniff on the walk? We're going to talk about what's acceptable, what's not, and we'll get down down to the nitty-gritty of that. Then we have when does training end? Does it ever end? Does it ever stop? We're going to find out. (laughs) Next segment is going to be the first pets. Of course, it's been a great segment so far. I've really loved bringing you guys all kinds of awesome info on the American presidents and all the amazing animals that have been in the White House. Then we'll have our listener Q&A. And if you guys have questions for the listener Q&A, you can email me questions at speakadogcast.com. Or you can message me on social media as well. Any dog training, animal training, any kind of question in general, send it on over. Keep them on coming. But before we get going with today's show, I have to give you that trivia question. Today's question is going to be, what is the only venomous primate in the world? Yes, what is the only venomous primate in the world? I'll give you the answer to that question somewhere in today's podcast. So be sure you stick around, sit, stay, and enjoy the show. Next on Speak a Dogcast, walks and sniffs. Should your dog be allowed to sniff on the walk? That's really the question. That's what it comes down to. When I start working with clients, uh, you know, with, with, with in-home training, you know, I start working with clients at any point. It always starts with getting the walk under control, creating a good walk. And look, the only way to create a good walk, the only way to get the walk under control is to create focus. And the focus needs to be on you and needs to be on the walk. You know, guys, a dog can only focus on one thing at a time, quite literally. And so if the focus is all about sniffing every two feet and, you know, if the focus is on nothing but smelling stuff, then there's no focus on the walk and there's no focus on you. And again, if we we don't have that focus, how am I creating a good walk? Okay, so it's not that I don't want dogs to sniff around on the walk. It's I don't want the purpose of the walk to be sniffing. You know, does that make sense? Um, And and here's the thing. This is, I think, the biggest thing that people kind of forget and don't think about with when it comes to sniffing and sniffing, smelling and scent in dogs. You know, this is the thing people forget. Dogs' noses are a hell of a lot better than ours. (laughs) Like We're talking a difference of hundreds of millions of receptor cells. They have hundreds of millions of more receptor cells in their nose than we do. Hundreds of millions. Think about that, Sadie. Hundreds of millions. So the way that they smell the world, you can't even begin to fathom it. We can't. We can't even begin to understand that perspective that a dog has on the world just from the simple fact that they smell the world before they see the world. Okay? It's true. It's very true. Dogs really kind of see the world in a smellscape, you know? Uh, With people, we always say, you got to see it to believe it. You know, I got to see it to believe it. For a dog, it's I got to smell it to believe it. Okay, look, I'll tell you a little story. Years ago, um, I think I've actually told this story before, but it's been a long time. Quick story. Make a long story short. (laughs) Uh, Years ago, when I was working at another animal training facility, I had adopted an older dog recently who had never been housebroken. We were trying to work on housebreaking with him. We did successfully, long term, uh, but we were in the process. 
And so I had to come home. Luckily, I didn't work far away, but I had to come home on my lunch breaks and let out this dog, you know, let him out so he could relieve himself halfway through the day. And this one time I ended up taking a, um, taking one of my, my coworkers cars cause their car was close or my vehicle was way out in the parking lot. So I took their car and I totally forgot to grab my keys to the house. Right. I don't have keys. I don't have a garage door, but I have nothing. And so I got to the house and that was when I realized I didn't have, you know, get all the way there. Of course, <laughs> point is guys, I had another dog and talked about him before. Mr. Colby Jack missed my buddy so much. Um, anyway, Colby was of course at the house and I got there. None of the doors are unlocked. I said, ah, maybe I left the door. I'm back around back unlocked by chance. Hopefully I didn't, I didn't, but that was the point. I got around back and my dog started going nuts when they saw somebody coming in the screen porch. Of course, as they should, you know, who, who's there, um, getting very defensive. Anyway, so I walk up to the door and it's locked and Colby is just at me. And I even looked at him and said, Colby. Colby Jack, it's me, but er, low growl. He didn't trust me because he couldn't smell me. He could see it was me. He could hear it was me, but he couldn't smell me. Now, you want to also, let's take in mind, uh, let's take into consideration, I had never walked around the rear of the house before to enter. No one ever comes around back when nobody's home like that. Uh, we, You know, a couple factors going, but the real point of it is, he didn't believe it was me because he couldn't smell me. Now, the whole point of this story, guys, is that is how much a dog relies on their nose. And so if they're constantly taking in the scent and smell around them, the point I'm getting at is when you're out on a walk, your dog is constantly smelling. You don't have to stop and let your dog sniff to let your dog sniff because they're doing it the whole time. Okay. Now, you know, maybe I can try to get a video of it sometime, but if you have a proper walk going, right? Dog has got its head down, trotting along, all is well. You know, it looks like a dog in the zone. But if you watch them closely, if you watch it, especially if you get a dog with a really good nose, uh, but they all have really good noses. <laughs> Point is, if you watch them, what you'll see is you'll see the head scanning back and forth, left and right, as they walk. Scanning. And what they're doing, guys, is they're smelling the entire time they're on the walk, even in the zone. Because what you can kind of teach your dog do is to, uh, is to, you can teach them to get into the zone of the walk and still be able to take in scent. The problem is most people view smell time has to be this obsessive thing. Well, David, when do I let my dog smell? Now we can stop for smell time. We'll talk about on the walk. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but the point I'm trying to make here, guys, is dogs are always smelling. You, you've got to take your human perspective away that, well, we have to stop and they have to obsessively smell every five feet in order to let my dog smell on the walk. Guys, just going for a walk is letting your dog smell on the walk. <laughs> Can you believe it? Yes. Getting your dog out into the world, exposing them to different locations, different walks, different hiking trails, different places you can go. That's letting your dog smell on the walk. So should your dog smell on the walk? Yes. Should they smell obsessively? Absolutely not. Right? Walks are 85% mental and only 15% physical. Hey, if we're just kind of sniffing around and it's a free for all and they're just doing whatever they want, there's no mission. But if they're on the walk, they're engaged, their head is down, they're going along, they're slowly scanning back and forth while remaining with the walk, remaining with the owner, checking in with the owner. That's all good. I like that. Okay. But do you see the difference? One's a free for all. One's a structured walk. They both have sniff time. They both have sniff time because dogs have incredibly amazing noses, but one is structured. One is not. Okay. So it's not to say we can't let our dog stop and sniff on something, you know, I mean, sniff, you know, for a little while or whatever, 
But what I prefer to do is I prefer to create those moments as a reward, right? Let's say we've been going for a good 30 minute walk. My dog's been really awesome for the first 30 minutes. They're doing fantastic. They've been with me. They're engaged. They're not distracted. Well, yeah, let's pull over and go, all right, that's where my release word comes in, guys. We've talked about a release word before. If you have good and proper control over your dog and you've taught them that they need to listen until you release them, then you can actually use that release on the walk. I do it, you know, walk over. All right, uh, there's times where I know my dog needs to use the bathroom. I try to let them use the bathroom before we go on a walk so I'm not carrying a gajillion poop bags. Um, mostly a logistical thing for me. Uh, but again, the walk is also about the walk. It's not about relieving ourselves. It's about the walk. The relieving can be a part of it, but okay. Anyway, getting back into it. Um, <laughs> I can be walking with my dog. They did great the first 30 minutes and I want to go, hey, I want to give them some sniff time as a reward. Yeah, you can actually use sniff time as a reward, right? So if my dog is pulling me down the street and just I, no focus, they're all over the place, they're jumping, they're barking at other dogs, the last thing I'm going to do is let them keep doing whatever they want. You know what I mean? I'm not just going to let them keep sniffing on everything and peeing on everything if they're acting like a lunatic, because then what am I doing? I'm just positively reinforcing the behavior. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, so we have to take away this myth that creating a good focused walk means we're taking away their smell time because a dog is always smelling, always taking in scent. It's crazy. Um, you know, I don't, again, as I've talked about before, I don't really understand why people think structure, rules, and boundaries are such a horrible thing. Uh, it's actually not, <laughs> especially if you're a four-legged furry dog. It's actually quite necessary to to make a healthy, balanced dog, okay? So I, I don't know why there's this like, oh my gosh, rules, boundaries, ah. Look, I had somebody recently that boarded their dog with me, their you know, client, and um Friends were saying, oh my gosh, why would you, why would you leave your dog with a trainer? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you go leave him at the free-for-all doggy day camp boarding facility that's run by a bunch of 18, 17-year-olds? Huh? So let me see if I get this straight. Why would you board your dog with a professional who knows what they're doing when it comes to behavior in a home environment where your dog is actually going to be most comfortable, where they get to actually interact with dogs in a safe and healthy and happy way? Or we can go to the free-for-all <laughs> with no rules, no structure, no boundaries, and my dog comes back from there worse. Gee, let me scratch my head and figure that one out. <laughs> All right, anyway. So look, it's, it's, this, it's this misconception, I think, that just because we have our dog on a structured and good walk, just because my dog listens, just because my dog behaves, all of a sudden that means I take all the pleasure out of it. I, I don't understand that mentality because it's completely backwards and wrong. Um, you know, it's crazy to me. So walking in sniffs, walking and smelling doesn't have to be one or the other. As a matter of fact, they never are. They never are. No matter what your walk is like, great, bad, somewhere in between, no matter what, your dog is still smelling and sniffing on the walk. So the question of is my dog allowed to smell on the walk is, is really kind of, it's moot. It doesn't, it's, it, it, the question is invalid <laughs> because that just goes to show we truly don't understand a dog at their core. I'm not picking on anybody or pointing a finger, but it is a societal problem where we go, oh my gosh, a walk is taking away their ability to sniff. No, it's, dude, what's that giant nose thingy <laughs> that's constantly twitching and going and taking in smells? Doesn't matter whether you're walking stopped in somewhere, it 
they're always doing it. Okay. So change the perspective as we talked about a couple episodes ago, right? Change your perspective on what a dog is. Oh, that was, uh, what was that? That was episode 80, the human perspective. Change your perspective on what a dog is, guys. And that will change your perspective on, should my dog be allowed to sniff on the walk? Because the answer is they already do. They already do. And yes, you can. You can allow them to have extra sniff time if we do it under the right context, the right situation. Again, using it more as a reward. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question when we think about, when you really kind of think about it, is my dog allowed to smell on the walk? Guys, 200 and, and uh, what is it, 224? I think that's 224 million, 224 million receptor cells in a dog's nose. I might be off by a few million. Give me a break on that. Uh, <laughs> my brain's been in overdrive. I might be forgetting that statistic just a little bit. It's right around, I promise you, right there. And human beings are like three to five million, four million, somewhere around four million, if I'm not mistaken. Do you see the, do you see the difference? Like we can't even begin to understand that perception of smell. Like I, I can't even fathom that, you know, uh, it's like trying to fathom the distance of the cosmos. <laughs> you just, you can't do it. You can't do it. Um, <laughs> so remember dogs are always sniffing. They're always taking in smell. They're always taking in that scent. It's how they're hardwired. It's what they're meant to do. So just because we're out on a walk and it's a structured walk doesn't mean we're taking that away. Look, dogs that sniff obsessively on a walk, it's not really a walk. You're not getting out of that walk what you could be getting out of it, okay? So think about the fact that your dog is going to be always be smelling no matter what, and instead I want you to up your walk, make them 85% mental and only that 15% physical, and you'll have a better quality walk going, and your dog will be, well, smelling anyway. <laughs> Are you tired of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? We can help. At The Nature of Training, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Offering a wide variety of services such as in-home training, doggy and puppy boot camps, doggy day camps, boarding, and now offering virtual training as well. For more information, check out our website www.thenatureoftraining.com or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at David Paws. Located in beautiful Palm City, Florida, serving all of the Treasure Coast and North Palm Beach County. The Nature of Training, helping you achieve success with your pet. on Speak a Dogcast, when does training end? It's a good question. When does your training with your dog end? The answer is kind of never. <laughs> May not be what you want to hear, but it is kind of the truth. Look, you can train your dog to a point that true intensive training, true like training uh, does go away. There is a point where the treat pouch can disappear, okay? Um, but that takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of dedication, and more importantly, it takes knowledge and understanding. If you really want training to quote-unquote end with your dog, it, it takes you getting off your butt and being proactive as hell. I'm, I'm just being honest. That's 
what it takes, okay? It takes getting out there every single day, walking your dog, every single day, going over commands, every single day, working your dog, giving them a job, putting that brain to work, making sure they're listening, creating control, having an established hierarchy, creating balance between reward and discipline. That's how you get your training to end. It sounds like a lot, and you know what? To some degree, it is. I mean, I'll be honest. Training is not just easy. I mean, it's not this, it's not rocket science by any means, but it's not easy. It's not easy because it takes a lot of commitment and it takes a lot of discipline on your part, you know? Um, that's why there are, you know, I have. <laughs> There are times when I go through some clients, you know, where I've got maybe more than half of my clients not doing so well. And then there's an ebb and flow of it where I have like 98% of my clients just out there kicking butt. You know, it's this weird ebb and flow that I have with my business. And I think any trainers out there can relate to that. You know, you you, you go through these phases. And I mean, in any business, right? You can have good times, bad times. Uh, you know, I've had my share. Um, <laughs> told you I'm a Zeppelin fan. Um, anyway, you know, so it is, it's a lot. And especially when you start with a puppy. Oh my God, like what? Oh, geez, you, you have a puppy and it's amazing how the months go by really quick, but at the same time, you're like, oh my God, this needs to end. When will this dog grow up? I need the chewing to stop. I need the peeing to stop. <laughs> you know, I get it. I feel you out there, puppy people. Um, so, but, but if you have a puppy, I mean, I'll be honest, guys, it doesn't end. It doesn't end when you have a puppy. Like until they're grown up, training doesn't end. Some of y'all get lucky out there. You do. Uh, look, I got lucky with Penny Lane, my first one. She was phenomenal. Um, I had a lot of time to put in with her. I really did. And, I, and that's the thing. I put in time early on, a lot of time and a lot of training, and it paid off because by like just under a year old, she was phenomenal. She was an amazing dog. Like like Riker's pretty damn good. And Riker's just under two years, not quite a year and a half yet. Oh uh, yeah, not quite a year and a half. And he's really awesome. Like, don't get me wrong. He's really phenomenal. But like Penny was just a notch up. She was, she was, she was excellent. Um, and again, you know, before they're even really full adult dogs. So you put in the time, you put in the effort and it pays off. But puppies, it's like this never ending thing. You're going to feel like you're just going forever. And you should. That's, that's what it should feel like. <laughs> Your training should feel like it just never stops. Okay. So, I mean, I, I'm just trying to be honest with you. The training doesn't ever completely end. It's, it's like having... A child, ages 0 through 18, and a dog, it, their life is sort of like that. It's like 0 through 18, you know, all the way through through the time you lose them. Um, because you always have to give them some direction. And the main reason for that is just the way their, their brains are wired. They want to be told what to do. So that that training, that that structure, if you will, is never going to go away. That's more what I'm talking about, that training doesn't stop. It's more like that structure can't ever fully disappear. Now, as I say to my clients all the time, you know, if you start with a lot of rules, a lot of structure to start with and boundaries, and you're really disciplined with it to begin with, over time, you can slowly take that structure away. And then you can only have a minimal amount of structure that keeps everything in place, you know, sort of looking at it like building a building, building a building, you know, if we're building a house or any, any kind of building, we build the structure, you have to lay a foundation. We have to put down the two by fours, put up the drywall. Like, you know, we have to put a brick around me. We have to make a solid house to start with. And that takes a ton of work, a ton of time, and a ton of different tools, right? And then all those tools added up end up building a phenomenal house. Now, is that house always going to stay standing without any work? Absolutely not. The house needs maintenance. So that's how you have to look at dog training. 
you got to put in a ton of time and effort to begin with, and it takes a lot to get it built. But once you get it built, it's about maintenance. It's about maintaining. So it's not that training ends, it's more training transforms. Training takes on a new role into this maintenance role as opposed to the building role. Okay, that's kind of how I think you really should view it. So does training ever end? No. <laughs> okay, but we have to also, I mean, you could think about it as a walk. You know, a daily walk is still a form of training. And you really, you should be walking your dog every single day up until they physically can't anymore. Even if it's only a five or 10 minute walk, mentally and physically, it's going to be really good even for your old dog. Okay. So that is a form of training. That's a form of maintenance training though. I would call that maintenance. I wouldn't call that foundational training. Right. Um, but you always are going to have to do it. So training never really ends. But if I go back to, let's, let's, okay, so let's talk about just basics for a second. Reinforcement, punishment, as we always talk about, okay. The more you reinforce and strengthen behaviors early on, the less you have to do it later, right? So if you really hone in on all the good stuff your dog puts out, all the good stuff you create with your dog, and you strengthen and strengthen and strengthen and strengthen with food and reward and all that, if you do that a ton to begin with, it makes it, then, then later on you have to do less. Then later on it becomes maintenance, okay? So we always have to go back to sort of that, that basic psychology view that it's all about strengthening behaviors you like and weakening and punishing behaviors you don't like, okay? And the more you do that early on, no matter how old your dog is, early on in your training that you establish, the earlier you do that, the better. Look, it's funny, when I go into homes for training, I tell people, you know, the consultation, I, I sometimes get oohs and ahs. I mean, I, it's, it's awesome. It is. But it's funny because it's like, wow, you know, it's like, wow, you have, I've never, I've never seen my dog so focused. I've never seen my dog do that. I've never. And here's the thing. While yes, I, I, I like to think I'm good at my job. Part of it is that I have no established pattern with this dog when I walk in the house. So whatever I lay down in that moment, whatever, whatever rules I put out, whatever reinforcement I throw out, Whatever I do is a blank slate. And so that dog knows, boom, right off the bat, dude, I sit down and this guy gives me food. Holy crap, I'm just gonna sit down every time I see this guy. And sure enough, I come for the first session, the dog looks up at me and sits down and is calm and focused. Because from day one, that's all. So in a way, what I'm getting at, in a way I have an advantage because I, I have a blank slate to work with. You know, most people screw up their dogs before I come over, right? <laughs> It's true. Uh, most people, you know, they they don't lay the best foundation with their dog. They don't condition some, you know, these these desired behaviors. And instead, they they reinforce and and strengthen undesired stuff. But for me, that dog doesn't know what I'm going to strengthen. What, you know what I mean? So it's a blank slate. So it's not just I'm good at my job. Yeah, I like to think that. Uh, but it's also the fact that I've never worked with this dog before. Okay, so you see what I'm saying? If I start with a good solid foundation. Go adopt a dog tomorrow. If you lay down these rules to begin with, create focus from day one, then it's more maintenance down the road and not training. Look, Riker's a perfect example. Puppies. Puppies in general are perfect examples. They are blank slates. And we get these cute, adorable puppies and we all melt and turn into morons and do all the wrong things. <laughs> but with Riker, day one, 11-week-old dog, guys, day one. There we are creating focus. There we are working on a sit. There we are making him stay for his food, making him stay when he comes out of the crate, working on crate training, okay? Rewarding him when he pees outside. He was one of the easiest dogs I had to housebreak. 
Okay, partially because I've gotten a lot better at housebreaking over the years, learning the tips and tricks. Uh, partially because he had a good foundation to begin with, with the rescue he was with. But really when it comes down to it, it's because we strengthened that behavior. We started from day one, blank slate. This is what's allowed. This is what gets reinforced and rewarded. And he figured it out real fast. And there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There was no debate. There was no anything. Because that's all it was. That's all we conditioned from day one. Now it's turning into maintenance and he's not even a year and a half old yet. How awesome is that? I don't need a treat pouch. Look, just was that yesterday? I don't even know. I think that was yesterday. I'm losing track of time. Um, <laughs> I took him up to Home Depot and I was just like, oh yeah, I don't have my treat pouch. No worries. Like I, I knew it. I got in the car and realized I didn't have it and said, eh, you know, let's do it without it. He doesn't need it. Sure enough, he was phenomenal at Home Depot. Did everything he was supposed to do. No treat pouch. Not even a year and a half old yet because from day one, Day one, I was like, boom, we got to get on this. And that way, boom, now it's maintenance. Okay, see what I'm saying here? So training never ends, but the better you are at it to start with, <laughs> the less you have to do later on, okay? So training never ends. Training turns into maintenance. And it's still a form of training when you think about it, but I mean, come on, guys. It's a hell of a lot easier to maintain a house than it is to build a house. So spend time building that house. Take that time to really hone in on it, and you'll discover that in the end, it'll just be maintenance and the training. Well, to some degree, yeah, it does end. The answer to today's trivia question, what is the only venomous primate in the world? It's the slow loris. Yes, they have a toxin-producing brachial gland under their arm. Now, they lick the gland because when combined with saliva, its bite becomes venomous. Bites can lead to anaphylaxis and even death in humans. Now, this is a very interesting question today because here's the thing. Venom and poison, right? We've heard of venom, we've heard of poison, but here's the difference between the two, and it's a very particular distinction. Venom has to be injected, whereas poison is secreted. Now, something like a poisonous toad, right? Toads will actually secrete a poison out of their skin or out of a gland, and so when a predator comes to bite them, that secretion goes out, they taste it, either they want to spit them out or they're poisoned by it, right? Uh, that's poison. Poison is secreted, whereas venom, venom has to be injected. Now, this is fascinating because the loris actually secretes the, the poison but it doesn't really turn into a venom. It doesn't turn toxic until it's combined with the saliva and then injected. And that's what makes it venom. So fascinating that if they just secreted it and that's what made it toxic, it would actually be a poison. But because they secrete it, combine it with the saliva and then bite and inject into their victims, <laughs> into the recipient, that makes it a venomous primate. Really cool question today. Next on Speak A Dogcast, it's The First Pets. Today on The First Pets, we will be talking about Rutherford B. Hayes. Now, Rutherford B. Hayes was the 19th president of the United States, and he served from 1877 to 1881. His time in office was marred by the lasting effects of the Civil War and his efforts to bridge the large divide that had grown between the North and the South. Now, Hayes and his wife Lucy, sometimes known as Lemonade Lucy, for famously for her refusal to serve alcohol on the White House, they had a love for animals that, of course, they brought with them to the White House. Now, they had several dogs, Jet, he was a mutt, Duke, an English Mastiff, Hector, a Newfoundland dot a Cocker Spaniel, two shepherds, Hector and Nellie, and two hunting dogs, Juno and Shep. There was also a greyhound named Grimm, gifted to Lucy by Mrs. William DuPont of Wilmington, Delaware. 
Lucy grew very close with Grimm, and the whole family became attached as well. Now, in the president's diary, he actually says that Grimm, quote, took all our hearts at once. Grimm was also known to sing and howl any time the first lady took it upon herself to sing the national anthem. Now, kind of funny, uh, my dog growing up, Ashley, <laughs> she used to love to sing anytime my dad or I pulled out our trumpet and played. <laughs> but unfortunately, though, Grimm actually lived up to his name with a tragic passing. After the Hayes family had moved out of the White House, Grimm was out for a walk and unfortunately was hit by a train and killed instantly on impact. Now, the Hayes family received hundreds of letters of condolence at their loss, and it's, uh, you know, it's really sad, but it's, it's profound on how much a lot of these pets really touched a lot of the citizens of the United States at the time. So uh, even after his presidency, how many people wrote in? So really interesting. Now, Duke was another one of the family's favorites. He was a large but gentle giant, and he was known to be very loyal to the family even protective over the kids. Now, the Hayes family did have an interesting first while in the White House, and that was the first Siamese cat ever imported to the United States. Now, Siam, aptly named, <laughs> was a gift from David B. Sickles, a U.S. diplomat posted in Bangkok. Siam was a favorite of Hayes' daughter, Fanny, and they loved the cat so much that when she became sick, the president's own doctor was actually called in to try to help her. Now, unfortunately, Siam did not recover, and there were instructions given to preserve her body, but a stuffed Siamese cat has never been found. Now, the Hayes family did have other animals as well. They had a goat, now partially for practical reasons, and it was the 1800s, so the goat was there for milk and butter, but also to pull their son Scott around in a hitched cart. And they also had a mockingbird, four canaries, pedigree Jersey cows, and several carriage horses. Speaky Dogcast, it's the listener Q&A. First question today comes from Gina from Albany, New York. Gina says, I have a mutt and he has about 55 pounds. He's very excitable, especially when I take him to the dog park. He will literally pull me over to get inside. He's very dog friendly and I've never had an issue with him when it comes to other dogs, but he does stir up a lot of overexcitement when we get into the dog park. What can I do to slow him down? That's a good question, Gina. Now I had a segment about dog barks a few episodes ago. Maybe you should listen to that. <laughs> it's how to avoid conflict at the dog park. Now, granted, you you know, your dog is not necessarily causing any issues yet. Look, not that I want to scare you, but at the same time, some very overexcited behavior like that, especially when coming into an already excitable environment, it can sometimes cause fights. I know your dog may not be trying to initiate that, but it can be misinterpreted by other dogs, or maybe other dogs don't know how to deal with that overexcitement, and they go to snap. So, and I, you know, fair warning, yeah, we you're going to want to get this under control, which obviously it's already what you want to do, so hey, we're going in the right direction. All right, so what do you do to slow down? Um, look, you've got to start desensitizing him to the dog park a little. What I would recommend is you need to start, well, taking your time, okay, taking your time getting to the dog park. And it can't, look, if you can... I want you to drive to the dog park parking lot, sit there for a few minutes, not get out of the car, not get him out of the car, and then just leave. He's not going to like it, but that's what you need to do to take away some of that overexcitement. Then on top of that, once you do decide it's time to go to the dog park, you get out, you've got to take your time getting to the dog park. Now, look, being that he's going to bowl you over, I mean, I'll be... Here's the thing. You're going to have to hit this from a couple angles. <laughs> just being honest, because it sounds like you may not have the best control of him on leash, and that's where it has to start. Because if you can't control him 
not at the dog park, you know, if you're just out on a walk and you feel like you maybe don't have control, that's going to pose a problem for you once you get to the dog park. Okay. So we've got to get the walk under control and some focus. Go back, you know, listen to my episodes on creating focus on the walk, all that good stuff, because there's a lot of info it's going to take to get you there. You know, uh, this is a little easier said than done because it sounds like he's, he's strong and he's determined. And now on top of that, this is a pattern. So we first have to desensitize the dog park a little. Next, we got to get the walk under control, creating some focus. Then we want to take our time getting into the dog park, walking toward the dog park. He gets too excited. We walk away from the dog park. We try to reintroduce, go back toward the dog park. He gets excited, too excited. We walk away. So, so on and so forth. So we can try to calm him down and get him to understand calm behavior is what gets you to walk toward the dog park. Look, then eventually you're just going to need to walk around the dog park outside of it a little bit. You need to be outside the dog park on leash and walking your dog back and forth. When your dog is starting to give up on the dog park a little bit, starting to ignore it a little bit, starting to calm down, then we can move closer and maybe go inside. Now you're in the breakaway area in the dog park, right? The little, the little perimeter fencing area. You're going to want to hang out in there and get your dog nice and calm uh, before you go inside. I, look, this is going to be a process. I'm just being honest, Gina. This is going to take some time, and it's a little easier said than done. Um, so it's all about trying to desensitize, create focus on the walk, only walk toward the park and reinforce calm behaviors when he's calm, and kind of trying to take your time getting in there. Okay, I, 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 this is a little involved, I'll be honest. Whenever I've tackled something like this in person, it's a little involved and there's sort of some, uh, uh, you know, visual. You have to kind of see what's going on a little bit. So I hope some of those tips kind of help you. Uh, maybe reach out to me for more info if, if you know, you want to talk more about it because that's, eh, that's going to be a little hard. <laughs> Next question. This comes from Scotty from Denver, Colorado. Scotty says, what are your thoughts on vibrating collars? Not the collars that shock, but just provide a vibration and an audible signal, an audio signal, right? Um, yeah, you know, look, I, I think a lot of these tools, with the exception of a handful of them, a lot of these tools have their purpose and their place. I've never used a vibration collar, uh, with the exception of one time years, you know, I had a client who was a hunter and he especially had his dog like out on I don't even remember how many acres. It was a lot of acreage. And so he wanted his dog to have a really good solid recall. And part of the problem was he'd be like out of sight and even out of um, distance for his dog to even be able to hear him possibly. So we trained his dog a recall with the vibration, never ever using the shock. Um, and then we also wanted to, he wanted to just make it the, the audio signal. So we just trained a recall with it. And every time we, you know, got the dog to come back to us, we were hitting the, hitting the collar and associating that. So that's where a vibration collar might be helpful. I don't really like to use them as a form of correction. Uh, I prefer to use it as a conditioned uh, response as maybe a recall. You know, like that. that's really the only time I, I could see a use for it. I don't really understand why we want to have some kind of vibration. Like, I don't, I don't really get the point of that. <laughs> People go, oh, my dog doesn't like it. And he kind of looks at the collar weird and he stops. To, yeah, he probably stopped doing what he's doing because he's distracted by the vibration. That's not really fixing the behavioral problem. You know what I mean? So that's kind of my argument against these vibration collars is like, why? There's better tools for the job. Why? You know, um, again, if it's a specific purpose, like a recall when a dog is out of sight, out of out of hearing distance, sure, sure, I could see it. But like, otherwise, to me, I don't know. What's the point? That's really all I got for you, Scotty. <laughs> That'll wrap up the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening in. If you love what you're hearing, click that five-star rating. You can follow me on Instagram at speakadogcast. Have a wonderful week. And don't forget, get out there and walk your dog. Walk your dog.